0: Left dot news indie. What's up, indie? Indie news network. Indie. I got news from independent left. Independent left dot news. Independent left dot news. Indie left media. Independent left news. Indie left. Left, left. Independent left news. Independent left media. Indie media. Indie left. Indie 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 left news. Indie left. Hi, indie. Indie left news. Subscribe to indie news network. We're world building. Your your way of assisting, I feel like, is really cool. IndependentLeft.news. Independent left news.
1: He created INN. The founder of uh Independent News Network. Indy is the founder of Indy News Network. Thank you, Independent Left News. A huge thank you and shout out to Indy Left.
0: Everyone check out Indie Left News. Hey Indy Left. IndependentLeft.news. Indy. Hi Indy. Indy, Le- Indy Left. Indy Left news. Indy news. Independent media. Independent left news has done an amazing job. No, wrong one. Wrong. This is one. Hey, now we're good. Hi, Fee. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Hi, I've got They're recent. Fans. Wow. Okay, Indy needs to practice his engineering skills again. Holy crap. <sighs> he, he, he he practices them every
1: week. And yeah. Somehow. Somehow. I managed. I can't get mad. We all we all make those mistakes. I manage. I've done some of those.
0: And thankfully it wasn't too bad. But uh we've got a couple of fan members' signs already in chat. I don't know who else is here already. It looks like we got nine, ten people, and I know everybody else is popping on. I'll give them a second. But hi everybody. Um re Julian no, Assange. Everybody. Hi everybody. Re Julian Assange. Uh we had an awesome weekend. Holy moly, what an amazing stream. Um We were fortunate and blessed and grateful to be piped into Roar Media slash Beauty and the Boomer Oz and Trailer Park Pundit Shonda, as well as Action for Assange and Comrade Misty, Bitch. All those channels were streaming the Assange Rally, as well as several others. Uh, Ford Fisher was the MVP. He got right out in front, and he had the coverage for everybody, and we all kind of fed into that and were able to simulcast that out, and thousands of people watched it, so... So psyched about that. What'd you do all weekend, all week long? You had, you had some crazy stuff happening.
1: Yeah. I had, um, show Tara Saturday morning. Um, like that was with Maria Butina. That was a good show. Right. Um, and then there was that whole action for Assange Saturday. That was a big deal. I was trying to support that as much as possible that day um and then that friday we did a reefer at the dark with you uh and colin that was that was a heck of a lot of a fun so heck of a lot I of for- a
0: fun so long ago i forgot honestly um, like just run. okay
1: y- yes yesterday practically
0: practically
1: um like you forgot um must have been good weed it, it's, um and then you did Indie Media Awards that
0: Friday I think we, right? We did. We I, I did the Indie Media Awards and we we have the the list is now live so you can go to indiemediaawards.com. i n uh, d i e mediaawards.com I can drop that in the chat and you can check that out at your convenience. Um there are profiles yep. and links for everybody all of the honorees, there are 39 honorees and so, so proud to be able to, you know, spotlight their work and showcase them and put them all into kind of one basket. Uh, you're grinding right now. Uh, again, One basket, but uh, you know, give them each the due that, that I think that they've earned. And um, again, a lot of them don't, don't really get the kind of spotlight and, some of them are really uh, have reached out and are really psyched about it. Some are still finding out and it's really cool. Um, again, we don't really have very many of these type of awards, so I'm pretty psyched about that, but we're here to do a show and I am really excited about the show. Uh, I'm not normally excited about doing stories or about doing this, uh, you know, doing the show I am, but it's a lot of, you know, kind of negativity and we've got a really positive, exciting story to start tonight. So, uh, well, we're five minutes in, so welcome everybody to How Do We Miss That? How Do We Miss That? is a show podcast, streaming live on Rockman and YouTube, Twitch, Rumble, Facebook, Twitter, Odyssey, and Telegram, as well as on, in, on IndieLeft.News, um, Sunday nights, 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, available on all your favorite podcast platforms as well, Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, you name it. That's co-hosted by me, I'm Indy. I'm the founder and editor of Indyleft News and Leftist.Today. Uh, Actually, that's got to change. That's how media.today. the leftist.today still exists, but we're changing that to media.today. It fits better. Um, I got this guy sitting next to me. He's Reef Breland. He is the technical director for Indie News Network, INN, the host of Reefer After Dark, which we were both on on Friday night, and INN News, which is on every Wednesday night, normally about 9 o'clock Eastern, sometimes a little later, sometimes a little earlier. Uh, We're both founding members of the Indie News Network, and that's a collaborative family of— Who are these people? Well, yes, who are these people? Uh, 23 independent, well, they're, they're a collaborative family of 23 independent content creators who you, many of whom you already know and love. You can go to IndieNews.network and you can find all the different uh, links to our channels. And in there, there is a link at the top to meet the members and you can find everybody's links for Indie News Network. Uh, all the stories that you're going to see tonight. Oh, yes. Hi, Steph. Thank you. Thank you. Steph, Steph is now, I guess, in the house. Um, all the stories tonight yeah. were featured in IndieLeft.News between Sunday and Friday It's just impossible There's such a firehose of developing news that all week long These are just four, actually there's six of the big big stories It's six articles, four stories You're going to see what this is all about And I'm pretty psyched about this, okay Make sure to share this out, like the stream, sub to our channel On all the platforms you watch and listen Like I said, we're everywhere on every platform you can imagine Even Facebook, I know Again, so so proud about the hands of Ralph Assange uh and so proud about the indie media awards and and i will uh cover that a little bit more but really i want to get to these stories so let's jump into here's our thumbnail right there oh colin's here hey what's up dude and kelly welcome we've got the patreon he's the Care Bear at the bottom bears. he is the he's care bear, care bear. willie bragg who showed up on on uh, in, uh, in dc on saturday at the assange rally which was fantastic um and I saw pictures of him with Misty and some others. So, so psyched for you to be able to get meet everybody. But, um, so, we've got five, uh, four stories tonight. We got Canary, worker takeover. That's going to be our first story. What's going on over at Star- Starbucks United Union, the warehouse fire over at Amazon, and the latest with that. And then, of course, the EU and how the, their sanctions are actually jacking them up. But, so, the first one is about the Canary. So, Monday morning, we do our show Sunday night. I go to bed at, like, 3 in the morning. 3:30 in the morning every night. I get up at 7:30, quarter to 8, and I find this tweet in my feed and it says, "The bosses are gone. We're relaunching today as the Canary Workers Co-op. Keep an eye out for updates." Show your screen. Oh, what? Oh, I you yes. Oh, keep an eye out for updates throughout the day. Yeah, that would help if I did share my screen with Reef. Uh, here we go. Share screen. This one. Go live. Here you go, dude. All right. So, Keep an eye out for updates throughout the day as we go as we share the story of what came before, who we are now, and where we go from here. Get the full story at co opcanaryco which is kind of funny. They're they're a bird, it's a coop, a co-op. And I was like, that's badass. So, first of all, wh- what what's going on here? So the first thing is wh- what's happening? All right. At Canary. So first thing is I click on the link, I'm like, this is really cool. That's a Canary Turn Seven. They have a whole website dedicated to the Canary Workers Co-op. And this is actually in gray, but uh, what do you call it? Uh, Our our great green screen is messing with it. So this article is actually part of a series, and we're going to cover two of the articles about the workers' revolution, which led to the Canary becoming the Canary Workers Co-op. This is in the U.K. You can read all the articles in the series and visit the new dedicated page. Again, that's canaryworkerscoop.uk. If I go backwards, you can see what the URL is. Here, bah, bah, bah. right there, co- coop.thecanary.co, COO or co op.thecanary.co. So, uh, what, what's going on here? So, I'm like, this is awesome. What's happening? So, very flowery, never, never a feathered beast to rest on the wing. The canary is in the midst of radical changes. We make the wisps and wherefores, again, these are British guys, of that transformation in a series of articles and a dedicated page, right? This October marks the Canary's seventh birthday. So, to accompany the multitude of revelations you can find elsewhere on our new improved website, here's a potted history of the Canary's journey so far. So, we're going to go a little bit further back. What potted. what happened? How did they start? Again, the, a potted history, right? This is this a is. Pot. Colin's going to love this because Colin actually, uh, you know, he has British British roots. So does Joe Nice. Uh, the early days of the Canary, right? Took flight in took flight again, they used bird references, which I also love because indie left has has had a bird kind of tied to it. We kind of dropped it a little bit now, but we'll we'll come back to it uh the canary took flight mm-hmm. in october twenty fifteen within a few weeks of its- a, within a few weeks of its existence. mainstream media outlets started freaking out. They had good reason to do so because the canary was calling them out on their shit. I love it. <laughs> For years, there's been growing dissatisfaction among the public with the overwhelmingly right-wing establishment media. This was one of the mm-hmm. reasons why the canary came into being, right? So, the hunger for an alternative me- for an alternative was clearly reflected in our readership, with the publication reaching millions monthly from quite early on, right? 2015 was also the year that Jeremy Cor- Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party. He championed ideas that promised to upend the status quo. Naturally, the establishment's media, not a typo, instinctively tried to sabotage him at every turn. We know all about this. So, as part of a growing independent media landscape at the time, the Canary dedicated a significant amount of time in our early years to giving people some idea of what their electoral choices actually were, including making sure people knew which parties were electoral cheats. The upshot of the UK's electoral choices became very clear with the arrival of coronavirus. The government dragged its heels on reacting to the emergency. As one of our staffers astutely pointed out, the government's early response echoed a proclamation by a character from Shrek who said, Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. I believe that was Lord Fauntleroy. Lord not, Farquad. Uh, Farquad, that's right, not Fauntleroy. No, that's JB. Mm-hmm. So sorry JB, love you, bro. Um, the, we'll get his lordship eventually. Right. The canary called this appalling leadership out oh. from the start and continues to do so. to do so. Right? Many stories, one foundation. So seven years is a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things, but looking back at the breadth of the Canaries' coverage, it's seven short years feel like a lifetime. From the arms industry to the welfare state, via police brutality, and the sixth mass extinction, we've cast a wide net in terms of reporting. We've uh, What's behind all our reporting choices, however, is a re- revulsion of injustice and a compulsion to stand with those facing with it. What? Yeah. The Canary has also attempted to confront the injustice within the media landscape itself. It's a closed shop industry that generally greets people who don't have a private education with a sign that reads, your name's not double-barreled, so you can't come in. But through our Amplify project, we provided free training, mentoring, and paid publication to magnify marginalized people's voices. This is a fantastic publication. I mean, and they have a, a U.S. division as well, The Canary. I don't believe they're co-op. So, talking about changing with the times, we live under the boot of a system that cannot exist without injustice. So, as an entity that rails against injustice, the canary has faced challenges. This has impacted how we operate as an organization throughout the years. What do you mean? We began, for, for, for example, as an organization that largely derived income from advertising revenue, but moves by social media giants to limit the reach of independent media Bogus attacks on us and other factors ultimately propelled us toward the adoption of a different model, a membership-based model, where most of our income comes from the generous people who financially support us. We are immensely grateful to our supporters for financing our work, and we feel a deep sense of responsibility to them. That is, in no small part, why we have spent a considerable amount of time this year looking inwards rather than outwards. I love this. As we explained in detail elsewhere, we uncovered a ton of unequal practices that are the antithesis of what we stand for. So we got rid of the bosses and we started laying down the foundations for our transformation to the Canary workers co-op. Fuck yeah. As we set out in this ambitious and necessary newest course, one thing is for certain we will need members old and new to help our birds soar. So this is Tracy Keeling. She's a member of this workers co-op. It's really badass. Um, that's half of it. I want to flip and I want to go to the tweet that I saw in the morning, uh, the A series, because inside Twitter there is. Is morning. Is morning. No, inside Twitter, let's bring this over into my mm-hmm. browser. Why can't I? Okay. There you go. Worked, we go. That works. Okay. Yeah, it didn't exactly do do what I wanted, messages. but that's okay. Yep. Messages. Message. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. yeah hit the
1: arrow, weirdo. The bosses are messages. gone. We're now the Canary Workers Co-op.
0: Thank you. Eight.
1: The Canary has undergone a workers' revolution. We are now a cooperative with a structure that is run democratically by the people who actually work here.
0: We pass decisions in open meetings where everyone gets to say, and everyone's vote counts, and we make decisions transparently and collectively. We are now truly embodying the sort of work environment and community spirit that we advocate through our journalism. There is no other truly radical working-class-led media outlet that is run by the workers and has the reach of the Canary Workers' Co-op. Faced with an ultra-authoritarian Tory government, millions on the brink of destitution, escalating global conflict and multiple environmental catastrophes. The need for strong, independent, disruptive journalism has never been more urgent.
1: This is what a real media revolution made by the people for the people looks like. Join us.
0: Badass, right? So I'm like, this sure. is so cool. So I sent this over to Colin. I'm like, you got to see this. And so I read that part of it. Now we got to get to the other half, which is written by one of the guys. And here it is. For the first time ever, the canary is under workers' control. So. yeah. I think we like this this photograph to begin with. Okay. Yeah. So this week, we are relaunching the Canary as a worker-owned co-op. Again, this means that all decisions will be made by the workers from now on. There will be no bosses, and everyone will get paid the same for a day's work. We aim to be an example of radical democracy in action. Wow. Okay. So the Canary has adopted a sociocracy structure, and there's a whole link to this website, sociocracyforall.org, And I just screen capped a a small portion of it, but there's an entire website dedicated to this. But what is sociocracy? It combines consent decision-making, a decentralized system of authority and intentional processes to improve our decisions and processes over time into a governance system that supports an effective and efficient process while increasing connection, listening, and co-creation among members. It's used in businesses, communities, nonprofits, cooperatives, grassroots groups, and in education. And the whole idea is decentralization, everybody gets a say, and a truly democratic uh, work, workplace. So, this it sounds good, right? So, it's, it should have been like this from the beginning. So, of course, this is the way it should have been from the beginning. It's shocking that a media organization set up to do courageous campaigning journalism, on the side of the oppressed, was set up with a rigid hierarchy and inequality pay and conditions between workers and bosses. So we're releasing several articles and statements explaining the extent of the Canary leadership's oppressive, unequal, and entitled behavior. You might ask, why why did we stay on? Well, the reason why we're here is because we all believe in the need for radical media that isn't afraid to speak truth to power, amplify voices of the oppressed, and envision a world beyond capitalism and the state. However, in radical media, uh, I'm sorry, however, radical media needs to be a microcosm of the world in which we want to live. It needs to be worker-run and truly democratic. Colin's like probably nodding his head going, yes, yes embodying organizing, it, embodying the change we want to see. Over the last six months, mm-hmm. we've been organizing hard for control of our workplace. It wasn't easy to achieve. In fact, it's taken a workers' revolution but now we can honestly say that we are striving to embody the change we want to see. If we want to see revolutionary change in society, we first need to take back control of our lives, our livelihoods, and our workplaces to create an infrastructure that can be a resource for movements struggling for change. We hope the Canary can play an important role in providing a platform for a radical politics that seeks to transform society in a holistic way, not just to elect a social democrat leader, a social democratic leader while leaving the rotten state system in place. Here's how the way we work is going to mirror our vision for change. And I think you saw some of this in the video. Okay. They've registered a new organization, the Canary Workers Co-op and filed articles of association outlining their structure, which again is that it's been set up to create a cooperative media platform, which will be run by its members in a radically democratic way. That means that all of our decisions will be made by the workers themselves. UK law requires us to have directors, but our directors don't have any more say in decision-making than the rest of us. Because we're registered as a cooperative within UK law, our primary rules need to be written in a certain way and meet certain criteria. However, we want the way we operate in practice to mirror a deeper radicalism and militancy. As such the way that the canary operates as a co-op and a sociocracy will be an unfolding process defined by the decisions we make day to day as a collective we'll work hard to ensure that what we create is an empowering expression of our collective vision the decisions we make and which we actually govern and which actually govern the way we work together will form our secondary rules So, this is really interesting. Like, people always ask, like, you hear the word co op, but what exactly do you do, like, when you're building a co op? So, with cooperative principles, it's guided by the cooperative principles, which means that, number one, we are owned and controlled by and for our members. Everyone who works at the Canary is a member of the co op. Number two, we're democratic, and all of our members have an equal say in how we're run and how we spend our money, most important. Number three, we're committed to providing education and training to our members. We believe in helping our members develop for the good of the co-op and for the good of the movements for change that we are part of. And we'll work with other co-ops and with wider communities to achieve our aims. I love this. So under the old regime, the canaries' bosses got paid significantly more than the workers. In fact, the difference was a lot more than we were led to believe. When we we began to take control, this was one of the very first things that we changed. Now everybody, from writers to editors, copy editors, designers, and video journalists, gets exactly the same hourly rate, which is currently set at twelve pounds an hour—a rate that we can, that we dearly hope we can increase in the future. Twelve quid. Decisions were previously made at the Canary in a deeply hierarchical manner. Important, dis- important choices about finances and strategy were made between a few bosses, and decisions about our content and direction were passed down from the leadership team, in a unilateral matter, with only the occasional half-hearted nod to, to a, any collective process. This has already begun to change. Since we wrested control from the bosses, we've made decisions collectively through discussions and general meetings. Problems are solved through discussion and agreement, not by majority rule. We know that we've just only only just embarked on the path towards creating a radically democratic decision-making process. We're the first to admit that we have a long way to go on that journey, but we've already established that decisions are taken by everyone and that everyone's voice should be included. So again, here, let's talk a little bit more about sociocracy. So over the last six months, again, we've been discussing how can we implement a sociocracy system? And as of today, this is the system that we're going to use to run our organization. Again, this is a reminder of what this is and that it's used far and wide What it means is that a lot of the decision-making power in the Canary will be devolved into working groups known as circles, which have a remit to decide certain things. Each circle has a delegate tasked with communicating with the rest of the organization. Again, it's not a top-down structure. Each one is a collective that because of their expertise and because they volunteered and because they joined a certain circle, they are now part of that decision-making circle. This kind of decentralized structure is nothing new in anti-authoritarian organizing. Things like it have been used by militant and revolutionary movements for many generations. But a clear structure set out by sociocracy for all is really useful for our purposes. Creating decentralized power within the canary means we can take into account everyone's views and work toward a shared aim without the potentially cumbersome process of making every decision as a group of 15 workers. So within our sociocracy structure, let's say that five times fast, all major decisions will be made by consent. If a decision does not gain consent, then it won't go ahead. Instead, we'll try to understand each other's objections and work out a new proposal. So we understand that this process is unlikely to be a smooth one and that there's going to be a real need to work out how we, to, to work out how to make sure we listen to everyone and take into account everyone's needs during times of disagreement. But we're proud to be adopting a structure which has collective decision-making and non-hierarchy at its core. The Canary Workers Co-op doesn't only want to exist for the good of its members. We want to be building part of building power from the bottom up and outgrowing our current unequal and unjust system. We want to collaborate with other co-ops, particularly radical media co-ops and social movements to further this aim. And we're proud to launch the Canary Workers Co-op today. We feel we can finally begin to live up to the values that we write about on this site. We hope we can be the start of a new journey and that our co-op can be a vital part of the radical media ecology in the UK and hopefully worldwide. We intend to amplify the voices of the oppressed and be a platform that demands and enables change. That's a badass article, man. Written by Tom Anderson. Mm-hmm. That is badass. Mm-hmm. What do you what, what do you think of all I that? Mean,
1: yeah. I, I, well, I like to see how it goes for them. You know, I think like I think having a co-op is good. Um, I don't necessarily know their like level of journalism as much as probably you do. Um, they're, they're
0: pretty good. Uh, I would say that they're one okay. of the better outlets. Again, they've been featured in indie indie left news, not recently for a while. Maybe because of the um, the structure that they had and the content they were choosing to amplify to to, to go towards. I'm not really sure. I also don't focus as much on UK stuff. But I don't even know how or why yeah. this this specifically showed up. Maybe it's because it was a worker co op. Um, I do follow the Canary UK. I know Mohamed El Mazi at one point was working there. I don't know if he's still over there or what what the story is. I did not read all of the Um, articles. I did not go through all of these. Um, And I think that is the end of this segment. Yep. So let's go back to me and Reef. And, oh, boy, we got a bunch of people here. Hey. All right. So Jimmy's here. We got Rick Solis. We got Eric T. Red. We got Kelly. And we got... So much fan, and Mr. Crab, yes, thank you, Mr. Crab. Um, everybody, uh, thanks, thanks to, and it draws on the use of consent rather than majority voting. <clears throat> so basically, everybody has to kind of collectively agree that that's the best decision. Agree. Yeah. Right. Karen, how are you? Welcome. Yep. We got Big Mad Crab. Everybody's here. Check this out. That is the so bad. The maddest. Again, thank you, shout-out to the Big Mad Crab for this thumbnail, which is fire. Oh, look at that. Starbucks Workers United. Green against green. That's what happens. So it shows up black. You must be too close to your thing again. I hear hear myself in your mic getting feedback. Um, Okay. I don't know if anybody else is. I don't think so. Anyway. He's big. He's mad. He is the crab. So... Our next story is um, what happened over at JFK 8 this week. I know you first reported it. And by the way, this was written by Sharon Jang from Truthout. And, and you'll notice that there's a little um, logo next to Sharon Jang. And she's got two logos because not only is Truthout an Indie Media Award honoree, Sharon Jang also is an honoree for. Being one of the top writers, and we we feature her stuff very often on this show as well as in Indie Left News and love her to death and appreciate her work. Support her Zhang Z H A N G underscore Sharon on Twitter and support Truth Out. They're an outstanding organization. So Amazon warehouse workers wage a work stoppage in protest after a fire breaks out. Wait, what? Wait, what? Yes, this is what happened. Yep. So our buddy, we know this guy, Chris Smalls, right? Mm-hmm. So this was, this was in, in on September 5th. This was, I think, in front of Bezos' house. Uh, they took this picture. But he tweets out, hundreds of Amazon workers waged a work stoppage, and this is Sharon writing, in protest after a fire broke out in their warehouse in Staten Island, New York, on Monday, according to the union that represents the workers. According to Amazon Labor Union, Over 650 employees began protesting at around 8 p.m. Monday, saying that they could still smell fumes from the fire that had broken out in the trash compactor earlier that day. Night shift workers were taken to the break room when the fire broke out and refused to leave after they were told by managers to return to work, the union said. According to ALU leaders, managers threatened workers with write-ups if they continued their protest. What? Yeah. The work stoppage lasted nearly three hours, according to ALU, and a large portion of the workers marched to the manager's office to demand that the workers get sent home with pay. Workers also protested an offer of 25-cent raises that the company had made in the last week, which the union called insulting and said would amount to a pay cut due to inflation, True, and the fact that workers at the warehouse still have yet to have their union recognized by the $1.2 trillion company. ALU says that the stoppage may be the largest collective action ever taken by Amazon workers. It's also the union's first major work stoppage since it voted to unionize earlier this year. Right? A lawyer for the union, Seth Goldstein, told Motherboard that workers said the compactor caught fire, that it caught fire, had been malfunctioning and smoking for weeks. What? Yeah, God forbid they have to replace the compactor and lose their profits. One of the reasons that people are unionizing at Amazon is because the employer cares about profits and doesn't care about their lives. We've seen this over and over. Where's the transparency here? According to a New York Times known Scheiber, one employee said that the warehouse still smelled like fire as of Tuesday. Again, there was a a fire. It's not really a surprise. The employee also said that day day shift workers had been sent home early. Amazon claimed that the stoppage only involved a small group of employees. And their quote their, their their statement was that yesterday there was a small fire in a cardboard compactor outside of JFK eight, one of our facilities in, in Staten Island. All employees were safely evacuated and day shift employees were sent home with pay. The FDNY certified the building is safe, and that, and at that point we asked all night shift employees to report to their regularly scheduled shift. ALU President Chris Smalls said on Twitter that the fire was especially dangerous because Amazon has a lack of safety drills. What? What do you mean? Well, here's what Chris has to say. Wait, I had that tweet in there. I mean, it must be next. Safety concerns are consistently a problem at Amazon. Workers and labor advocates say when six Amazon workers died after a tornado caused an Amazon warehouse to collapse in Illinois late last year, progressive lawmakers raised concerns about what they wrote was a wholly inadequate safety culture at Amazon, which potentially contributed to the death of six workers. That's the least of it. Workers said Amazon's policy of not allowing them to have smartphones on their person at work endangered them during the disaster. The company has since lifted that policy. Yes. However, the lawmakers highlighted concerns brought to light by an OSHA investigation that found the company maintains only the bare minimum safety requirements. One of the most profitable companies in the world. Data shows that Amazon warehouses are uniquely unsafe places to work. According to a report by Strategic Organizing Center released in April, Amazon accounted for about half of all warehouse injuries in 2021, despite only employing about a third of the warehouse workforce. Workers and labor advocates say that this injury rate can be partially chalked up to the company's extremely harsh and unbending work culture, which prioritizes speed over everything else. I think we know this. All right, so that's the first half of the the, the thing. And again, I'm not really sure where Chris's tweet went, but but that's pretty much what Chris had to say was right there. I probably didn't include it because it has a lack of safety drills, and that's that's what was happening there. I remember there was a video in there too. Uh, so the other half of this is what happened. So Amazon turned and suspended the, fi- the 50 employees who refused to work on on the, the Monday night shift. These sons of bitches. Kenny Stancil from Common Dreams. Common Dreams also recipient of an Indie Media Award for one of the outstanding outlets. So ALU lawyer here called the punishment of Staten Island employees, a violation of workers' rights to join in a collective action about the terms and conditions of their employment. They suspended at least 50 workers who refused to return to the shop floor for a few hours on Monday night due to health and safety concerns following a fire at the JFK 8 Fulfillment Center in New York City, company's only unionized warehouse in the U.S. Again, what these guys are going to say, I'm sure, is, well, the FDIY certified it was fine. What they're saying is, "We," will, the union is saying, we will not tolerate any unsafe workplace and we will not tolerate intimidation. Roughly 100 night shift workers at the Staten Island facility participated in a work stoppage shortly after a fire broke out in a trash compactor machine used on cardboard. Okay, Labor leaders said the warehouse smelled of smoke and that they couldn't breathe. One worker went to the hospital, they said. Late Monday night, here's Chris's sweet. I've been out here in the rain talking to upset workers instead of being sent home. Amazon management is threatening time deductions and written warnings for not returning back to the floor. The dock smells like burnt chemicals. Instead of shutting down, they hire a cleanup crew. Shaking my head. And there is a video that goes with this, if you can find the Chris tweet from today. He recently shared footage of the fire and ensuing protests on social media. Right? Shame on them. Yep. Shame... Seth Goldstein called the punishment of Staten Island employees a violation of workers' rights. The workers didn't feel safe going back to work. They were engaging in rights that have been protected for 85 years under the National Labor Relations Act. As The Post, which is, of course, owned by Amazon's mega billionaire founder Jeff Bezos, reported, the mass suspension took place less than 10 days before warehouse workers at a separate Amazon warehouse near Albany are slated to vote become the second Amazon workforce to join Amazon Labor Union. By the way, that's 12:30 tomorrow afternoon. Chris will be in Amazon at ALB1. ALU scored a historic victory for the labor movement in April when workers at JFK8 voted to form the nation's first union at Amazon, second largest employer in the country behind Walmart. Nonetheless, the e-commerce giant which spent big on on union busting consultants and pulled out all the stops in an unsuccessful bid to crush the organizing drive, has yet to recognize the independent union. Amazon labor union organizers say Amazon's crackdown in Staten Island was intended to have a broad chilling effect on their organizing campaigns, including the upcoming election. And this is from the Post. Union organizers said that 10 union leaders who led the action were suspended on Tuesday, as well as 40 warehouse workers who refused to return to their shifts. Well, Amazon spokesman Paul Flanagan told the newspaper that all employees were safely evacuated. Like I said, from the from the area of the warehouse where the fire had broken out, day shift workers were sent home with pay. But once the fire department had certified the building was safe, the company asked night shift workers to report to their scheduled shifts. This is mm-hmm. an issue. But while the vast majority of, of employees reported to their workstations, mostly because they knew they would be retaliated against if they didn't, a small group refused to return to work and remained in the building without permission. ALU, however, disputes the corporation's account and describes the suspensions as clear retaliation against workers who refused to work in unsafe conditions. Amazon Associates, JFK 8, uh, had our lives placed at risk yesterday, and this isn't the first time. ALU said Tuesday in statement, "Yesterday's safety and health risk fire, but uh, is but one example of why we voted to form a union, so we can have a real voice on crucial issues which impact all associates every day." Our unionization effort has its origins in a health and safety crisis, the, the COVID pandemic. And Jeff Bezos and Amazon's complete disregard for our safety and our family's safety continued. Of course, before he was elected president of ALU, we know this. Chris Smalls was fired from JFK 8 in March 2020 after organizing a walkout to protest their refusal to adequately prote- protect workers from COVID. On the facility has earned a reputation for egregious violations of workers' rights since it opened in September 2018. Data published earlier this year, for instance, shows that the fil- fulfillment center's already above average injury rate increased by 15% from 2020 to 2021. Right. Quote, well, it's well documented Amazon warehouses have major safety and health issues, and their treatment of everyone, uh, every one of us, yesterday underscores why we need Amazon management to respect our choice to unionize, to follow the law. I'm sorry and their legal stalling and start negotiating with us over key issues, including our own safety and health. We won our unionization election fair and square, said the ALU, pointing to the NLRB's recently announced plan to throw out Amazon's objections to the union's victory, which paves the way for contract negotiations, assuming Amazon comes to the table. Quote, Amazon workers made a collective decision last night to demand that workers get sent home with pay while the smoke cleared. We demanded to see the fire department report. We demanded real information about what was happening. When workers demanded the right to speak together as a union, Amazon then increased their intimidation by informing us that key worker leaders have now been suspended for doing exactly what workers voted for, coming together to make a plan that we as frontline workers felt safe on the job. We will not tolerate any unsafe workplace and we will not tolerate intimidation. Amazon reportedly, plan ALU reportedly plans to file an unfair, unfair labor practice complaint with the NLRB, I'm sure, in response to these suspensions. So, fuck you, Amazon, again. Like, billions of dollars. You can't send one shift worth of employees that are near that compact their home with pay for one day. One day. Their margins are not that tight. They're tight. They're not that tight. And why are they that tight? Because they want to squeeze everybody else, and they're putting everybody else out of business. I swear they're by and large they're B and L like in in that movie Wally. Are you frozen? Yeah. Oh, no, you're not no, frozen. Here. Okay. So mm-hmm. I know we've done a lot of coverage on Amazon A O U. Um, they are still organizing. K F K eight is still their bellwether. And we are still in their corner. We want to see this happen. Um, and this is what what they're fighting for. This is why they organized. Because without this, would anybody know that the, that the workers were sent back to breathe in potentially toxic fumes? No. Nikki, no. The radical leftist agenda is here. What's up? What's up, fam? What's up, fam? All right. Um, so that's crazy. Uh, Amazon, of course, draconian, ridiculous. Um. Chris Smalls is on the case. This is this is JFK8. I would expect that he would be there for this. Um, and of course, again, he's trying to organize and build around the country. This is why they need a large internal media structure on their own. Why they need to be building their own Amazon labor union network. Why they aren't today, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, that's on my soapbox. All right. So I got, I got. Uh, so, any any uh, any comments, any thoughts on on that story that haven't already been said? I'm just curious because you've done a lot of yeah, not. I have. I mean, I think
1: clearly working at Amazon is not in the best interest of a person to do. Hmm. You know, sad, um, sad. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's just like this is one among many terrible industries with like. Unions that like I wish were able to do more to stop this kind of thing. So you know, um I don't know. We'll see yeah, it's. I, I'd like these people to get some, you know, justice in that regard.
0: It it would be nice. Um not even justice, like just treated like people. Like fairly right, yeah. Like like mm-hmm. like not like cattle, like get your ass back to work salt mines like are you serious like okay we just had a fire we get that we had to send so you home can the wait day one, shift. you can wait a day you could you can wait right. an extra shift like one more shift um well they're gonna cl- again say that the well the fire department said it was okay well it was okay for what it was okay to actually have an entire group of people working there and breathing that shit for eight hour shifts or ten hour shifts or however long their shift is with the 15 minutes that they get for breaks and all the other nonsense. Again, Matt from ALU, mm-hmm. uh, formerly of ALU, but Matt from the Kentucky Campbellsville facility, who was recently fired and retaliated against for organizing, would be able to tell you a lot more about that, and he did on INN a couple weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. So let's see. Uh, yeah, Ka- Kelly, I wonder if someone set that warehouse on fire in California. Mm. Who knows? Uh, that's again, we got restream bot kicking in, but only for that's interesting on Twitch. Not on, I don't know why that's really strange anyway. So we're going to go to, we got a couple more stories. Those were the ones that had multiple articles in them. These are actually a little bit longer, but this one I thought was really important. Again, another organizing thing. I feel like we're turning into labor central here. Every Sunday night, we're talking about labor and worker rights and what's happening with workers. And by the way, Speaking of workers, Revolutionary Blackout Network is going to be hosting the Activist and General Strike Summit in, I think it's October 26th and 27th. It's it's a, it's toward yeah. the end of October. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be involved in participating. They sent over a preliminary list, and it is beyond impressive. They're going to be talking to organizers. They're going to be talking to striking workers. They're going to be talking to... Um, activists. They're going to be talking to people in the field. They're going to be talking to people who, people in media. They're going to be... God, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. But this story is really interesting because what's going to happen here? Starbucks union campaign at a crossroads. And I wouldn't necessarily pay too much attention to this, except that this comes from Socialist Alternative, and it is a Kansas City Starbucks worker that's publishing this. So Josh Crowell, and I really appreciate his writing here. Union busting is disgusting. In August, the Kansas City Starbucks bosses went on the offensive and shut down my location permanently. We've talked about this. Citing safety and security concerns. This was union busting, pure and simple. And my coworkers and I launched four days of protests in response. Big companies have always relied on the tactic of closing stores, denying benefits, and forcing workers into intimidating one-on-one meetings to stop organizing in its tracks by confusing and demoralizing workers. They announced this in a meeting of workers minutes before shuttering the store. We didn't take this lying down, lying down but immediately organized in a, in a picket line. We knew we had to stand together to fight back. Many of my co-workers, the ones who weren't already directly involved with the organizing, were having this clarity for the first time, understanding that. The only way to defend against these attacks was to organize with their fellow workers. Starbucks has shut down many locations across the country under the guise of safety and security, with over 40% of those stores being unionizing shops. Very disproportionate, considering only 3% of stores are unionizing. Lead organizers have been fired, many still with no recourse. As we go into Starbucks' busiest and most profitable time of year, workers will continue to be stretched in as Starbucks continues to escalate their anti-union campaign. Our union, Starbucks Workers United, must start organizing towards coordinated action at a scale not yet seen if we're going to have a fighting chance going into the fall. One of the things he's pointing out is that far fewer stores are filing for a union. So while informing my former customers about what really happened at my store and chatting with our workers at the protest. I've spent time thinking about the lessons I've learned from my experience as a first-time organizer. My store is one of the first 25 Starbucks locations in the country to, to petition for a union. I've been involved with the Starbucks Workers United Union campaign um, since January of 2022, and I've worked for Starbucks for almost four years. And now with my store closed, high election, which means no legal union recognition, and no recourse but to protest for my job, I've learned many lessons and have come to believe that there are many things our movement nationally should be doing differently. You know, we don't just complain. There's going to be solutions. Our union needs a major change in direction if it's going to go up against a ruthless corporation like Starbucks and win a union for all the nearly 400,000 workers at 9,000 stores. Although only 3% of stores have unionized now, there have already been countless examples of heroic and inspiring organizing done by workers as part of our movement, like we covered in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago. Minnesota. However, we can't just point to this. We have to take stock of the defeats, the shortcomings, and challenges ahead as well. When other workers and I raise concerns, we're told by SBW United leaders that what we're doing is working, so we just need to stay the course. But when I look at the numbers of our campaign, I see that there's a real danger we're headed for defeats if we don't change the course soon. The number of stores that have, that have filed for a union election has declined dramatically month to month from its peak of 70 in March. This was down to just, 40 under, just under 40 in May, 14 in July, and only 8 in August. I've found that most workers are not aware of these numbers, which is a problem. In order to have an honest discussion about our strategy going forward, we need to have an honest picture of where things currently stand. Here's the chart. September saw a slight uptick, but July, August, and September have all seen fewer than 20 filings. Again, it's good that we've seen any because we had Buffalo in August. We had none last September and October, and then they started to trickle. And then by January, you saw a wave of stores, but it started to ebb down and hopefully it starts to flow upward. So what are some of these lessons that Josh has learned as a first time organizer? Again, I appreciate Josh. I would love to to have him on and interview him and give him a platform and a forum to speak himself here. If he wants, if he yeah. wants one. Um, when we first started the union drive at my store, we got together a wide layer of workers into an organizing committee This included workers from different shifts and ages, different lengths of time with Starbucks and different positions. The strength of that diversity led us quickly reaching 70% union authorization card sign. Maintaining total secrecy from management and actively organizing on the shop floor in our off hours over the phone and in person supercharged this process. But while these movements were crucial to starting our organizing, when looking back, I can see where we started to falter. The advice that Workers United have been giving workers hasn't put us in the best position to build the kind of strong organizing committees that are necessary for fighting retaliation and winning real gains. They didn't tell us to start holding regular meetings where everyone could give democratic input or encourage us to start forming concrete demands that can speak to workers and motivate them to get involved. Unfortunately, they didn't present a real plan for my store or for unionized stores nationally to actually win. Holland talks about this all the time. What's the plan? Starbucks Workers United's ongoing emphasis on getting Starbucks to sign the fair election principles as their main strategic focus, while the company's anti-union crusade remains unrelenting, frankly, just doesn't resonate with my coworkers. While my store was able to quickly get cards signed, we never transitioned into regularly scheduled worker meetings. This led to many workers being pro union, but lacking any real engagement with the drive. Without these meetings, we weren't able to draw more workers into the cause in an active way, and our organizing committee slowly dissolved into a committee only entitled, not equipped with the level of activity required to keep workers organized. Having the right conversations matters. During the early days of the campaign, I believed all workers would understand how important this was in the same ways that I did. By using vague ideas of dignity and respect and a seat at the table, I brought in some of my co-workers, but many didn't see this as any different from what they already had at Starbucks, with its emphasis on partnership and being a progressive employer, which of course we know is just window dressing. The union busting lies spread by corporate and our managers were taken at face value. Because workers didn't have a concrete idea of what the union could actually win for them. I've heard time and again, leaders of Starbucks Workers United explicitly advise against having concrete demands. What? They say they don't want to make promises well, they, they can't keep, or that if we say exactly what we want, then Starbucks might give it to us and undercut the need for a union. But that's a big mistake. Back
1: back back, back Go up. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. I'll just back up a a slide. What what else? How do they? Go ahead. You know, of the SBU explicitly advised
0: against having concrete demands. What? Yep. Yeah. Why? Because you don't want to make promises that you can't keep. Or if they say exactly what they want, then Starbucks might just give it to them and say, "Well, what do you need a union for? If we're just going to do this for you?" Well, because we all organize once. Maybe there's other things we want too.
1: There's there's other stuff, right? Your const it should be a constant thing,
0: right? The lack of like... clear demands on <laughs> part of the Starbucks workers united left many of my my coworkers who were on the fence about the union inclined to choose Starbucks side. And Starbucks is never going to give up any major lasting gains without a fight.
1: Also, also, unions are not meant just for like getting more money, and you know what I mean, like this isn't just give me the things I want and then we're done. Like, no, it's, there's ideals that need to be met by the union themselves. Like, they have to be for the worker. They have to protect the worker first and foremost. Like, everything should be about that. They're going to pay for legal team and legal support and,
0: you know... Health insurance, health care and benefits and time off and comp. Yeah. Okay, so here's here's Josh saying if we had concrete demands, for example, of twenty five dollars an hour starting pay compared to a living wage or the removal of hours requirements for health insurance instead of workplace democracy. I know workers would have been more inspired to fight by seeing the real changes a union could give them. The other argument against demands the national leadership of SBWU promotes is that we don't want to show our hand to Starbucks. This doesn't make sense, though. How are we going to get Starbucks to give us what we want and need if we don't tell them? There is no mm-hmm. amount or combination of clever moral arguments that, will, that Starbucks Workers United leaders can make at the, beginning, at the bargaining table that will convince Howard Schultz to pay and treat us better. SBWU's current strategy doesn't seem to grasp this. Even though well, your
1: concrete demands, your concrete demands should not should be way more than a whole loaf of bread.
0: You gotta like, start, you have a negotiating so starting can, point.
1: Yes. Right. You you need to be the highball in mm-hmm. the situation. Like mm-hmm. they had to be constantly trying to meet your demands, not like you know, you need room to negotiate. So, oh, again, they, they ask for the moon.
0: Yeah, and accept like, somewhere and come in between. Down. Yep, and accept somewhere below. Right. Yep. I, I'm I'm a hundred percent with you, dude. Um, I don't know. Yep. So again, even so the New York Times exceed the things you right. Yeah. Even the New York Times has reported on this. Back in June, they read a story profiling Jazz Brzezak, one of the founders of Starbucks Workers United which sheds some light on the way she and the other, the others leading SBWU view the question of strategy. And this is tied, I believe, to SEIU. This is still major union organizing. So these what are some of the statements. does
1: Jazz sound like, it, it sounds like something that Frank Zappa would name its kid? You know,
0: Jazz right. Brizak? Right. So, you know. Mr. Schultz has long opposed unions at Starbucks, but Ms. Brzac, for one, believes that even business executives are persuadable. Really? She is even mused about using her Rhodes connections to make a personal appeal to Mr. Schultz, something that Mr. Bensinger has poo-pooed, but that other organizers believe she just may pull off. Give me a fucking break. Richard has been making uh-huh. fun of... the of me for thinking of asking one of the roads people to broker a meeting with Howard Schultz, Ms. Brazak said in February. I'm sure if you met Howard Schultz, he'd be like, She's so nice, responded Miss Moore. Her coworker would be like, he'd be like, I get it. I want to be in a union with you too. Really? Really? We're fucked. I, for one, don't think that business executives are persuadable by anything other than the sheer power of workers threatening their profits. Yes. In our store, lacking these crucial demands for workers to identify with and never solidifying regular meetings, workers went through the union drive passively. What I know is when workers come together and show their power through collective actions, their belief in that power increases. They further lean into struggle. Without workers taking ownership in the union drive and seeing the role of escalating action in getting the wins they need, workers will end up on the crushing end of an offensive corporate attack. Workers must show the bosses that they not only know their power but aren't afraid to wield it. My store chose to wield our power too late. Workers of all levels need the space to participate. Many of my coworkers were far too busy to engage in being a member of the organizing committee. Why students have homework and classes, and many of us have second jobs to afford our bills without regular meetings. My store never developed opportunities for workers to participate. Even if that participation is only a five minute vote on deciding what demands we have for a petition to March on the boss, maybe a worker who couldn't make a weekly organizing meeting would have been able to make an organizing meeting. Um, would have been able to make a monthly citywide Starbucks worker meeting, right? Being proactive and setting up opportunities for more people to have real ownership and democracy in their union is crucial to keep workers engaged. Guys, this is not something we can sit back and passively allow to happen. And I think a lot of the workers just want a union to happen, but they don't realize that they actually have to participate and be engaged and be involved. And that's what Josh is talking about here, that we need to strike together and democratically discussed strategy. As a national, ca- a national campaign needs a national strategy, Starbucks is a multinational corporation with an extensive and so far effective plan on how to deal with the union at large. Thank you. For workers to have a chance to win against the bosses, we must also have an effective nationwide strategy for organizing. Makes sense? This is why I, along with a group of other Starbucks workers from across the country who have similar concerns, helped launch a petition calling for a national strategy assembly where all workers can debate and discuss best strategies for how we can escalate against these attacks. These sorts of meetings should be ongoing and take up all questions of tactics, strategy, and demands for the struggle, allowing Starbucks Workers United to become truly democratic and worker led. But at this point, The time for discussion is running out. SBWU leadership should organize a one-day national strike, and out of that we should hold the National Strategy Assembly. The strongest weapon we have as workers is our ability to stop working and stop generating profits for the company. The bosses at Starbucks have 9,000 stores they profit off of daily, and shutting down one store for a few days or even indefinitely will not affect their bottom line but hundreds of stores going on strike at the same time would. It would inflict much more damage to profits and catapult the struggle into the national media spotlight, garnering even broader public support, maybe. As Starbucks continues to close stores like mine and fire worker organizer, worker organizers, Starbucks Workers United should throw its full force at the bosses through coordinated and escalating strike action, beginning with a one day national strike backed up by a strong-strike fund that's democratically controlled and administered by workers ourselves. <clears throat> it's no surprise that all at all that far fewer stores are unionizing when workers don't feel confident that their job will be fought for effectively by the union if they're retaliated against. Starbucks' union struggle is not going away anytime soon and is spreading to other retail service jobs across the country like Chipotle, Trader Joe's, and others. Our hope is that organizing workers everywhere, but especially Starbucks workers looking to fight for a strong Starbucks Workers United, learn the lessons he has, and help make the strategic decisions necessary so we can reverse course, pick back up the rate of stores filing for elections, win a strong Starbucks union, and start and continue to rebuild a strong fighting labor movement in this country. Hell yeah, Josh. Thank you. As bad as. That's good stuff. That
1: was the whole thing about the demands is dumb. Yes it is. What and that's
0: that's one of the things that I thought we should really showcase there is that Starbucks Workers United is not making specific demands. Um that I they think, don't
1: want to that, that they think it's a bad idea.
0: Well, not just that they
1: d- aren't but like
0: Well, I think they are but they're doing it specifically in by location and not saying that we want a $25 an hour minimum wage raise across the board. But what do you think that would mean to every other worker if the union got that and they weren't members of it? Holy shit, do you right. think they'd run to join it? A guy. Mm-hmm. What, how do you not see this? Yeah. Matt But it's also
1: like, Welcome. you should always be having the net. This, this is my thing about, the communication from the unions are the problem mainly, or lack thereof, right? Is. Mainly with their with their not not with us, not with the outside, but but we're like with the workers. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the you internal know, communication. Like there's no structure. way
1: you guys need to be putting out. You should have social media teams everywhere, like you know, just to be able to like work WhatsApp groups and. You know, discords and like you need to be able to like communicate, get people communicating as much right. as possible. Alert people when <clears throat> shit happens
0: immediately and get them moving. They should
1: they should be already knowing the next thing when you make a demand. That should not be that hard.
0: Look, this is also <laughs> one of the things that Colin, that the bank sisters, that Lucy, mm-hmm. that all of us have been talking about is as we do these collective actions as we do these live streams where we do these marathon um uh what do you call it uh, uh round tables and and we do uh summits what's then yeah uh you know what's next where do, where do we take this uh i think rbn is doing the damn thing like what rome is doing uh, i think misty is showing what's next in Mm-hmm. And we're going out and organizing and protesting. Um, I think there are several. That woman is saying. Man, shout out to Misty. Love you. Love you, girl. Um, Delilah Berrios, even, you know, contest. Somebody actually has to run opposed to the corporate duopoly. And show that there is an alternative out there. Getting, see now the thing, the other thing that bothered me about this article Huh. is this pie in the sky belief that well of the of the union organizer that she can potentially get Howard Schultz in a room and convince him that he should join a co a, a union with this person or with like all these that, organizers? Right. like that matters well well first of all it does if he is an employee of the company he's a member of the union he should be he should want to be a member of the union <laughs> and support all the people that work for the union theoretically except that we all know that that's ridiculous and like it matters is right. By the way, human human being, thank you so much. We got a $20 tip on the Rockfin. You can go over to rockfin.com oh, I slash that, I, rockfin.com slash news, and uh, we are streaming live over there and we are monetized over there, so you can give us a tip if you want to give us some, some weed money to, to Reef. I'll hook like, him up.
1: I feel like even then, like even with Delilah and stuff, like, you know, it's it's almost like your your energy can be like appreciated more elsewhere
0: the problem is the media know? structure again their media structure yeah is going to spin this and that's even if you have a mass one day strike so that they can organize and figure out what their demands are what's the corporate media going to report on that are they going to report that that's how it was no 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 of course not. they're not they're going to they're going to spin it expect how they them, want to spin expect
1: it expect them to Expect them to make the worst possible conclusions when you make any of these decisions. Like-
0: right. And that's what the majority of people are, that's all the majority of people are going to hear. Um, mm-hmm. Again, which is why you said, we need to have. they need to have the unions and the mass labor movement in general needs to have a much larger organizing structure, including a mass media arm. That is part of a yeah. labor movement and labor first. We are part of that media yeah. structure, even though we don't necessarily never really volunteered for it. We find that we are one of the few it's outlets similar, that is regularly reporting it's similar, on
1: labor. It, right. Well, labor is similar to politics in the problem that, like, a lot of you know, power is corrupt in that regard. Like,
0: an absolute power and, corrupts absolutely. I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah. Well.
1: Even with all this, there's the possibility that that union could not be working for you, like, especially with infiltration, like, you have to be vigilant in in this, like, if you do support it. So, like, looking at these things and learning that, oh, the the Starbucks union doesn't think that we should have concrete demands. No, you should have that and then some, you know, you should be making a big, long list.
0: Yep. And checking like, it twice, according to Santa Claus. Um, anyway, yes. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Yes. So we have one more story. Yep. Uh, okay, one more story tonight, and this is going to be about sanctions. Gross. And what's going on in Ukraine and EU and sanctions, and of course that bridge thing that dropped this weekend. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Is that the beginning? Is that the start of a of a much more escal- of a much larger escalation? I don't know. So Look, what's happening? Start
1: digging a hole in the backyard, man.
0: Hey, another Indie um, Media Award winner. What do you know, Moon of Alabama? I've reached out to them to let them know, and I'm going to be mailing Moon Alabama.
1: Each, we're
0: going to be reaching out to each of them and mailing them a physical award in addition to yes, having the website again, IndieMediaAwards.com. You can go to, and there are bios and uh, they just a logo up there. I don't have a picture because I don't even know who Moon of Alabama is, but they write some incredible analysis and have been for quite a long time. So. What's happening? EU pushes for more sanctions, which will come back to bite it. This is analysis about what's happening overseas. So, of course, we know that on February 22nd, two days before Russian troops entered Ukraine, the US and EU put reams of sanctions onto Russia. They also confiscated some $300 billion of Russia's reserves that were invested in the West. No, actually, stole. The sanctions had been negotiated between the EU and the US, and and prepared for over several months. The idea was to bankrupt Russia within a few weeks. The, the, the deluded people behind those sanctions had no idea how big uh, how big and sanctions proved uh, Russia's economy really is. The sanctions failed to influence Russia in any way, but their consequences led to a shortfall of energy in Europe and increased the already high inflation rates. Inflation in Russia is sinking, and its general economic numbers are good, the now higher energy prices generate sufficient additional income to completely finance its war efforts. In addition to the fact that they've made deals with India and China and Pakistan, I thought they tried to make one with Pakistan, but now that they outed their leader, I don't know where they are at with that. Um, Iran, of course, a sane actor, of course, would conclude that the sanctions were a mistake and that lifting them would help Europe more than it would hurt Russia more than it would help Russia. But no, the U.S. and European pseudo-elites are no longer able to act in a sane manner. They're instead doubling down with the most crazy sanctioned scheme one has ever heard of. The EU pushed ahead on Wednesday with an ambitious but untested plan to limit Russia's oil revenue. If the global price of oil remains high, it would complicate the EU's effort to impose a price cap on Russian oil that was expected to gain final approval on Thursday after EU negotiators reached an agreement on the measure as part of a fresh package of sanctions against Moscow. Wait, what? Yeah. Under the plan, a committee including representatives of the European Union, the group of seven nations, and others that agree to the price cap would meet regularly to decide on the price at which Russian oil should be sold and that it would charge, and that it would change based on the market price. So this is basically like a mob, a mafia. Several diplomats involved in the EU talks said that Greece, Malta, and Cyprus, maritime nations that would be most affected by the price cap, received assurances that their business interests would be preserved, the diplomat said. Wait, what? Yeah. The countries had been holding up what would be the eighth sanctions package that the EU has adopted since the Russian invasion of Ukraine because of worries that a price cap of Russian oil exported outside the bloc would affect their shipping, insurance, and other industries, the diplomats said. Wait, what? Dude, this is such a crazy story. With oil prices at a high, Russia is raking in billions of dollars in revenue, even as it sells smaller quantities. The cap, part of a broad plan pushed by the Biden administration that the G7 agreed to last month, is intended to set the price of Russian oil lower than where it is today, but still above cost. The U.S. Treasury calculates that the cap would deprive the Kremlin of tens of billions of dollars annually. Nothing. How do you make a big producer of a rare commodity sell those goods below the general market price? Unless you have a very strong buyer's cartel that can also, uh, that can also uh, produce that product, from else that can also source that product from elsewhere, you cannot do this successfully. It is an economic impossibility. Yep. To make the measure effective and cut Russian revenue, the US, Europe, and their allies would need to convince India and China, which buy substantial quantities of Russian oil, to purchase it only at the agreed upon price. Experts say that even with willing partners, the cap could be hard to implement. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, sure. Russia has declared that it will not sell any oil to any party that supports the G7 price fixing regime. I don't blame them. That is why neither yep. China nor India nor any other country besides the EU and US will agree to adhere to it. So <laughs> damn. Ah, uh, hello. No, the whole idea is crazy and way too co- uh, way too complicated to achieve anything. Under the new rules, companies involved in the shipping of Russian oil, including ship owners, insurers and underwriters, would be on the hook. For ensuring that the oil they're helping to transport is being sold at or below the price cap. Wait a minute. A transport company that is literally moving this stuff between now they need to know exactly what it's being sold at and that it's being sold at the market price that the, that the EU, that NATO countries are saying the Russian oil should be sold at or less. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Or more, actually, because what they want to do is they want to drive the price hot. Yeah. Yes, they did. All right. So if they're caught helping Russia sell at a higher price, they could face lawsuits in their home countries for violating sanctions. Oh, that's weird. Okay, they don't want to see Russia drive up the price. Except that they're gonna, they're gonna drive up the. Where are they gonna set their price in relation to Russian pricing? I, I don't, I don't quite understand how this works. All right, Russian crude will come under an embargo, an embargo in most of the EU on December fifth, and petroleum products will follow in February. The price cap on shipments to non-EU countries has been championed by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen as a necessary complement to the EU oil embargo. Under the EU deal, Greece, Malta, and Cyprus will not be, will be permitted to continue shipping Russian oil. Had they not agreed to place their companies at the forefront of applying the price cap, they would have been forbidden from shipping or insuring Russian oil cargo outside the European Union—a huge hit for major industries. Again. Protecting capitalism. This is what this is all about. Capitalism. More than half the tankers now shipping Russia's oil are Greek-owned. And the financial services that underpin that trade, including insurance, reinsurance, and letters of credit, are overwhelmingly based in the EU and Britain. Hmm, why are they doing all this? They're undercutting themselves. This is moronic. This is, of course, an open invitation to other countries to enter the oil shipping and related financial services businesses at the cost of the European companies. You think China's not going to rush in to grab this? China and India will both, in, will both do it to increase their market shares in those fields. Their ships will transport Russian oil to whoever wants to buy it for the market price, minus the always negotiable Russian rebate. Brave ships will sit idle or be sold off, while Indian and Chinese and other Asian tankers will be very, very busy. China's big insurance companies will happily join that new global services business. That That European bureaucrats agreed to this stupid U.S. idea, which will foremost hurt European businesses, is another sign that Brussels has given up on having any agency. Today, OPEC countries, the seller cartel for oil, reacted to the crazy sanctions idea and the upcoming global depression by agreeing to decrease their daily output by 2 million barrels. Why? This was not done out of Saudi Arabia's solid solid area with Russia. Saudi Arabia needs oil at above $80 a barrel to finance its budget. red crude, which had fallen to $83 a barrel on September 26th has since risen to $93. The global demand for oil is around 100 million barrels per day. Should the demand stay up at the, should the demand stay up, two percent reduction in OPEC production will have significant price effects. And a hundred dollars per barrel will be an easy reach, but OPEC is committed to stable prices, not to significant price increases. During the OPEC session of today, at so you know the, the Saudi Prince Abdulaziz showed this table, right? So this is a big mm-hmm. table, and it's messy. And uh, how much per ton, Or metric ton, and and uh, what does this mean? Since the beginning of the year, the prices for all forms of carbon-based energy except crude oil have increased considerably. The Saudi prince argued that the chart shows that OPEC is managing oil prices responsibly. The EU is certainly not doing similar. Biden administration has, meanwhile, nearly halved the content of the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is to keep U.S. pump prices down and the Democrats in power. It might or might not. Again, this is showing the size of the SPR. Like literally, it's at its lowest level since the nineteen eighties. Okay. Neither is a responsible step to take. And that's our new banner. Well with all our links and logos and nice. stuff. Check that badass out. Try to make it consistent. Yep. All the eyes are microphones. What did you just J, do you just J rock us? You be like, check that bastard
1: out, Mask. Ah. What? Oh God, Mask. Yeah. Ah.
0: That's that's awful. Wha? Trailer Park Boys is just J-rock, addictive dude. and awful and so good. Holy crap. Uh, okay. So that is our last story about sanctions. EU is shooting itself in the foot and doing it to help Amer- to quote unquote help America. Um. Nobody's helping. They're not going to help. What they're helping is to accelerate potential world war, which we don't want. Um, of course, I mean, it's going to be a cold winter in Europe right now. Um, it's going to be a mess. So I'm, I'm a little concerned. Um, Mm -hmm. what else have I got? I think, I think I'm pretty good. Um, that was, that was good How, an hour 20 that was good I, I thought we were gonna go even longer than that but I told you I, I went bigger font so more slides is more good yep. all right so uh I did want to take a minute and go through the indie media awards website uh f11 on this bad boy because it was not live or actually it was live the other night when I went live uh, to go through the awards show but um I couldn't get it live on my thing because I had not changed the URL at the top but uh, it is a very simple website. We now have the live stream that I did Friday night embedded here so you can watch it. Uh, we You can get to the top writers, top streamers, and top outlets here or in the top navigation. We also have an Instagram and a Twitter. We're going to be adding stuff to that. Really haven't even gotten started with this yet. Um, our little SEO explanation. And I read a lot of this, I think, last week on last week's show. So the, the site is now live. So if you click on top writers, it brings up this nice little pop-up box. And again, shout out to White Hat um, Technology or whatever his, his company is. And there's a link down at the bottom somewhere. You can hook him up. That's Josh. And he built a nice site. So again, if you mouse on each one of these names on the photo, it will go. And if you click on it, it will bring up a profile for them. That's a larger photo and another kind of transparent photo in the background and a little blurb. And links to find them on their channel. So Whitney Webb, for example, here's where you can find Unlimited Hangout. Find her on Linktree and Telegram, Rockfin, Twitter. We've got all the links up there. She also, of course, writes for The Last American Vagabond. Uh, Ryan at T-Lab did win an Indie Media Award for Top Streamers. These are the top writers. So we have 13 top writers. And we have, I believe, 16 top outlets and nine top streamers. So here are your, your top outlets. Again, links to all of these outlets, websites, social media accounts, wherever you can find them, connect with them, support them, please support independent media. It is super important, especially as they continue to ratchet up censorship. So we we want to honor these people uh, and, and these outlets. Truth tellers really appreciate their work. Sabby Sabs, Revolutionary Blackout, Jimmy Dore, Frank Analysis, Convo Couch, Lee Camp, Richard, Hardlands, Last American Vagabond. Thank you, really, all of you. And uh, and I hope you guys are are proud and happy that that we chose you guys to to honor with with an award. And again, Misty Winston also received an award. Uh, I showed that on at the end of Friday night stream. And again, if we play that right here toward the end, uh, okay. hey, there's me. And somewhere, here we go. This is the Misty Winston Award. We gave her one for activism. Uh, I don't know why this isn't blowing up. Oh, I'm in full screen mode. But it's for activism. And we really appreciate all she did to organize this weekend. And not just this weekend, but also on all of the Roger Waters concerts and Freedom Fest, which she went and manned a table for Assange. I mean, she's constantly already planning the next thing. And that's one of the things that a great organizer does is they're constantly looking at what's next. So again, IndieMediaAwards.com. Go i n d will put it again in the chat. IndieMediaAwards.com. All right, so this week, we have a lot of great stuff coming up. Uh, Tomorrow, holy crap. 2 p.m. Eastern. This guy's going to engineer a stream that has legends on it. Actually, we've got an mm-hmm. indie in, indie media award winner uh, honoree, and that would be Vanessa Bealy. She will be on Tara Reed stream two p.m. Eastern tomorrow with Wyatt Reed, who just narrowly escaped a hotel bombing in the Donetsk this past weekend. Thank God Truckin he's okay. Wild. Okay, so they're going to join Tara Reed tomorrow at two p.m. Eastern for a talk about. Uh, corresponding and and uh, being in a war zone um, and reporting and being a journalist in a war zone. Um, then Tuesday, I don't know if we have any shows lined up. I know I'm not lined up for anything because I'm going to be on the road this week. But Wednesday, we've got INN News with Reef and Colin. We'll see who else is going to join for that. Friday night, we may or may not have a Reefer After Dark. Um... And Sunday night, we'll be right back here for another How Do We Miss That? So, until uh, next week, I'm going to again say to keep questioning everybody's motivations, everybody. And even though I'm not a little birdie, we're still going to tell you.
1: Yep. Keep listening to what little birds had to tell you. Good night, fam. I think I liked it better being blind When I couldn't read between the lines and when i couldn't see the cracks in the structure that lay bare before me the whole time i think i liked it better back when i suspended disbelief and swallowed pride i thought i knew the difference in the red from the blue but they both bleed us so dry they both
0: bleed us so dry my favorite songs don't hit the same way i get to the End of a four minute track, and I'm only looking back thinking, what did they actually say? So I try to. <laughs>